So a few years ago, um, I was at a Christian seminar, and one of the activities was to plot on uh, a graph the high and low points of your spiritual journey. Um, so the points where you felt close to God or the points where you felt far away from God. Um, I don't know whether anyone else has ever done anything like this. Um, but I thought it would be a helpful visual for us to do one of these graphs for David, who wrote the psalm that we're going to be looking at today as we continue on our series of prayer. Just to set the scene a bit and give a little bit of context. And it looks a little bit like this. Just focus on a few points. It's very simplified. Um, we've obviously got the famous killing of Goliath. We've got David trusting so much in God's promise and justice. He doesn't kill King Saul, who's been trying to murder him. And then we've got probably one of the highest points of David's life, where he reclaims the sto stolen Ark of the Covenant from the Philistines, the thing that represented the very presence of God amongst his people. And there's this great passage that completely blows the mind of any good conservative British churchgoer uh, in 2 Samuel 6, when we see David stripped to his underwear and dancing for joy in the middle of the street. It's a completely uncontained, undignified overflow of joy being in the presence of God. The next chapter, David's life graph goes even higher. God promises that um, one of David's descendants would be the chosen Messiah. And then we've got some impossible battles that David wins. On, in general, on David's faith journey, everything is looking pretty good. And then we get to that red line uh, and things suddenly go wrong. Let's have a little look at this in more detail because um, this is the context of the psalm we're going to be looking at. You can read this in 2 Samuel 11 if you want. David messes up big time. To start with, he feels like he doesn't feel like fighting a battle, so he stays at home. That allows him to then see this beautiful woman bathing, and instead of averting his eyes from her, he lusts after her. Then despite finding she's a married woman, he takes her, he commits adultery with her. Finding out she's pregnant, he tries to trick her husband Jariah into raising his child, and finally, when that doesn't work, he has Uriah murdered. And we see that David, the man known for searching after God's own heart, has completely turned his heart away from God. But here's the clinch. God doesn't turn away from David. Instead, he sends the prophet Nathan to convict David of his sin, to make him realize that what he has done deserves punishment, breaking David's heart and causing him to turn back to God and repent. And that's where we're at in the psalm today we're going to be looking at in our series of prayer, Psalm 51. I encourage you to open it up in your books, if, uh, your Bibles if you've got one. It's a prayer of repentance. It's a prayer that shows us the power of confession, the boundless mercy of God, and the potential for spiritual renewal and transformation that can come from repentance. Reminds us that even in our deepest frailty, God's love is unfailing. So let's take a look at this. I've split the themes of the passage into three main points, the A, B, C of repentance. So A is admission of sin, B, spiritual bath time, and C, change. So let's start with A, admission of sin. Let's read verses one to five. Have mercy on me, O God, according to your steadfast love. According to your great compassion, blot out my transgressions. Wash away my iniquity and cleanse me from my sin. For I know my transgression and my sin is always before me. 
against you, you only have I sinned and done what's evil in your sight. So you are right in your verdict and justified when you judge. Surely I was sinful at birth, sinful from the time my mother conceived me. David starts his prayer of repentance with admission and a plea for mercy. He gets real and raw with God. No, there's no excuse, no denial, no justification. I don't know about you, but when I've been confronted about something wrong I've done, my first instinct is to make an excuse or to cover it up or to hide from it. And right from the very first sin in the Garden of Eden, it seems that human instinct, when we've done something wrong, is to hide from God. But isn't that just what Satan wants? When we've separated ourselves from God, doesn't Satan want us to hide even further away so we don't let God in to deal with it? But David's example says, no, that's not how this is done. He doesn't hide. When he realizes his sin, he admits how filthy and unworthy he is before God, that he deserves God's punishment. And his cry is this, against you, you only have I sinned and done what's evil in your sight. So you're right in your verdict and justified when you judge. We know, that, we know that whilst in a literal sense, when we look at the text, this isn't true when we think of what he's done to Uriah and Bathsheba. But what he's ultimately doing is acknowledging that it wasn't their laws he broke, but God's. Our sin hurts others, but all sin has its primary source as rebellion against God and going against his perfect purpose in our lives. And we know that not one of us is exempt from this. Not even David, despite his impressive resume of closeness to God, and definitely not us. Since the fall in Genesis, we're corrupted by sin in every area of our life. We think, we feel, and we make choices sinfully from birth, as David cries out. And on reading this, we might look at this example of David's sin and think maybe it's a psalm for somebody else, someone worse than us, that maybe we haven't committed murder or adultery or done anything that bad. But the truth is we're all sinners. And David describes what he's done with three words, iniquity, transgression, and sin. These three words have a subtly different meaning in Hebrew, with iniquity meaning kind of moral uncleanness, <laughs> sorry, relating to our corrupt human nature, the kind of intrinsic things. Transgression meaning intentionally disobeying and crossing a moral line, sort of knowing something's wrong and doing it anyway. But sin simply means that we've missed the mark, that we're failing to live in the way that God intends failing to mirror God's likeness and his love, and failing to live in an intimate relationship with him, instead living our own way. And we all stand guilty of God, of some, if not all, of these three things. We're described in various places throughout the Bible as loving darkness, having gone astray, being stained by sin, being morally corrupt. We all need mercy. And David acknowledges this before God. See, he knew he needed mercy and cleansing, but he also knew exactly where he needed to go to get it and why he needed to go there. Back in verse 1, it says, Have mercy on me, O God, according to your steadfast love. According to your great compassion, blot out my transgressions. David admitted his sin. He affirms God's right to judge him, but he doesn't stay there wallowing in guilt or self-pity. 
He goes to God, not because he has confidence in who he is, but because of confidence he has in the character of God he's appealing to. He knows he can approach him, not because of what he's done, but because of who God is, and that he remains faithful despite human faithlessness. The word used here for God's steadfast love is God's hesed, his loyal love that remains true to his promise to his people, that he will restore relationship with them. Whilst we are marked by sin and filth, God is marked with steadfast love. Whilst David's lives and our lives are full of highs and lows like our graph, God is constant. He is constant in love. He's constant in mercy. He's constant in faithfulness. He is constant in compassion. When Grace was younger, yeah, just an excuse to put a photo of her up. <laughs> when Grace was younger, we took her to a baby group that always had a messy PlayStation. And she used, developed a little bit of a reputation for always being the first one to get involved. Whether it was jelly, paint, mashed potato on one occasion, uh, she loved just getting her hands in there and getting absolutely covered. But a few months ago, she went through a bit of a shift where now when suddenly she gets dirty, she runs up to us, holding out her hands as if the world's going to end, her face crumpled, crying out, wipe, wipe, until we clean her up. She comes to us knowing she's dirty, that it's beyond her ability to clean herself, but knows that we, as her loving parents, will deal with her mess and make her clean. And this is the image that we're seeing here with God and with David and with us. A child in a complete mess, that realizing their mess comes to their loving father, knowing they can't clean themselves, but that their daddy will make them clean in love. Acknowledging our sin can be painful and it can be difficult, but David invites us to do so in the God who loves us no matter what and only wants to give us fullness of life. And if you take nothing else from the message this morning, take this. God loves you with a steadfast love. There's nothing that we can do to separate us from the love of God. But from this psalm, we can see it's not about us, not about how good or bad we are, but how constant and loving God is and how great his compassion is for us. And there's nothing that we can do to change that. So the A of repentance is admit, don't hide, don't hold back. Theologian Frederick Buchner says it like this. To confess your sins is not to tell God anything he doesn't already know. But until you confess them, they're an abyss between you. But when you confess them, they become the bridge. So let us confess. Let us come to God, come to the open arms of a father who wants nothing more than to help us out of our mess and make us clean in his love. Which leads us to point B, spiritual bath time. I was grasping at straws a little bit to make it fit with the ABC, but hopefully it will help you remember. Uh, this is about having certainty that God will make us completely clean and can free us from any guilt or shame if we're humble enough to let him in. Let's read ahead in verses seven to nine. It says this, cleanse me with hyssop and I'll be clean. Wash me and I'll be whiter than snow. Let me hear joy and gladness. Let the bones you've crushed rejoice. Hide your face from my, from my sins and blot out all my iniquities. Last year, one of our very good friends came to stay with us. And one day I came back in to find that he'd really helpfully done some housework with her, for us. 
which as a family with a young baby was hugely appreciated. However, part of what he had done was to clean out our fridge. Now, you know those sort of Tupperware boxes that make it to the back of the fridge and just go disgusting? And those out-of-date jars of stuff that you kind of don't use that become a little kind of biohazard army standing on the shelf. And that bit of sticky stuff that appears from somewhere that you don't know where every so often. We had all of that going on. Uh, it was an absolute state. And it was really quite disgusting. And I just remember feeling so embarrassed that he had seen it all and dealt with it and seen the past that kind of held together image that I had as a new mom, that I had everything under control. And I remember yeah, just feeling so ashamed. I wonder how many of us feel like that on the inside. Those times when you look at yourself and think, if people actually knew what was going on in here, both they and you would be horrified. You'd be so ashamed. Maybe you feel like that at the moment knowing that if you look at the inside, you feel dirty, that the things you are carrying feel unforgivable or sins feel too ingrained. But I'd encourage you that this psalm is a great prayer of hope for you. It says that no matter how dirty you might feel, no matter what you've done, no matter what anyone else says, the word of God says you can walk out of here today completely cleansed. Not just like one of those tr disappointing trickle showers you get when the water pressure's a bit naff, but a full-on jet wash clean inside and out, if you're willing to let him in. So if there are areas in your life where you still feel unclean, let him access them. Let him see them. Let him take them in his steadfast love and compassion and let him deal with them. Because we can have a real certainty with this. See, David uses uh, bath imagery. Cleanse me with hyssop and I will be clean. Wash me and I'll be whiter than snow. Blot out my transgressions. He's confident that God's mercy will completely cleanse him. And his confidence is rooted in promises that God's made throughout the Old Testament. He references the herb hyssop. And it's always interesting to follow a word through scripture to see where it kind of comes up again. And I found often where you get specific plants or trees mentioned um, that there's some sort of significance. And the mention of hyssop is one that doesn't disappoint. Shows us just where we can get this confidence of our deep, complete cleansing from. So get this, the first mention of hyssop, that's hyssop there, uh, is in Exodus, where the Israelites are instructed to use it as a brush to paint on the protective blood of the lamb over the doors of their homes to save them from God's judgment on the first Passover. David here is remembering the promises of God's faithfulness to his people. It's remembering that judgment and death should be the consequence of sin. But just as God saved his people back then, he gives such grace that his judgment will pass over us when we repent. The next mention of hyssop is in Leviticus 14, where it's used to sprinkle the blood of the sacrifice over lepers to cleanse them from defiling, defiling disease. Here is a symbol of being set free from coming death through sacrifice and the cleansing of the unclean. It's a reminder of David that we can be cleansed from the disease of sin that corrupts us from birth. This is why David has confidence in his cleansing, because he knows God's promised plan to redeem and restore his people. However, for us, it goes one step further. The final reference of hyssop is actually in the New Testament. 
John 19, the crucifixion of Christ, it says this. Later, knowing that everything had, has now been finished and so that scripture would be fulfilled, Jesus said, I'm thirsty. A jar of wine vinegar was there, so they soaked a sponge in it, put the sponge on the stalk of a hyssop plant and lifted it to Jesus' lips. When he received the drink, Jesus said, it is finished. And with that, he bowed his head and gave up his spirit. So when David's cry is, cleanse me with hyssop, not only is he referring to those past symbols of judgment passing over and the cleansing of death from the unclean, but he's prophetically referencing the very completion of this promise. He's putting down a signpost to the cross, to the resurrection of Jesus, where God has already dealt with our sins once and for all. This can be our confidence. We can trust that we can be completely clean again, not just because we know God's character and his steadfast love and his promise of redemption, but because we can see it in his completion. The sins we admit to, we have, he has already dealt with on the cross. Christ has come. He has died. He has risen again. We are and continue to be washed clean by his blood. Confession is the raw honesty about who I am, but trusting by faith that there is forgiveness and cleansing constantly available for all sin before I even knew it existed. And as a result, we're invited in Hebrews 10 to draw near to God with a sincere heart and with the full assurance that faith brings, having our hearts sprinkled to cleanse us from a guilty conscience and having our bodies washed in pure water. We all have our dirt, the things we carry that we hope no one else will see. How do we deal with that and pray through that? David shows us a way as he points to the cross. So if there is anything in you that still says, this thing I've done is too dirty, too unforgivable, if you're too deep in that pattern of sin, sorry, that you are too deep in that pattern of sin, this psalm is a prayer for you. I'd encourage you to take that thing that you're holding and hold it up against the cross in your mind and ask yourself, which of these things is more powerful? Which is greater? For no sin is greater than Christ's blood and no shame is greater than his grace. So our A and B of repentance is admit without holding back in the safety of God's steadfast love and immerse yourself in the bath waters of grace that give you full assurance of your cleansing through Christ's blood. Which brings us to land at our final point, C, change. Verses 10 to 12, it says, Create in me a pure heart, O God. Renew a steadfast spirit within me. Do not cast me from your presence or take your Holy Spirit from me. Restore to me the joy of your salvation and grant me a willing spirit to sustain me. In this part of the psalm, David anticipates one of the greatest promises to all who believe. In Ezekiel 36, it says, I'll give you a new heart and put a new spirit within you. I'll take your heart of stone and give you a heart of flesh. He uses the word create, the same Hebrew verb described in Genesis to describe the creation of the heavens and the earth, a word strictly used to describe what only God can do, miraculous transformation. David acknowledges that the root of our problem is our hearts. There's more to sin than the sin itself. Our hearts were created to mirror God's heart. We're designed to love him, to love righteousness, and to walk with God in harmony, walk with God and others in harmony. 
When we stubbornly refuse to follow God, our hearts are hardened. We need him to transform them into hearts that are softened to him, that seek him and that turn away from our sinful way of living. When we repent, we must ask for God's grace to get into our inmost parts, our motives and our hearts to restore relationship with him. The good news is that Jesus gives us a new heart. And through the power of the Holy Spirit, our hearts can be changed from sin-focused to God-focused. Romans 6 says, Our old sinful ways were crucified with Christ so that sin might lose its power in our lives. We're no longer slaves to sin. When we died with Christ, we were set free from the power of sin. And 2 Corinthians 3 says, We are being transformed into his image with an ever-increasing glory which comes from the Lord, who is the Spirit. We're living in the fulfillment of the Ezekiel passage. With new hearts, we're declared righteous before God and have the Spirit in us, transforming our hearts and minds. So true repentance should lead to change. And later in this psalm, David goes on to say that when we come to God for new hearts, we receive restoration. And that as a result of that, we live sacrificially, not to buy back our salvation, but as an overflowing response to God who has already paid the price. Romans 12 says, I urge you, brothers and sisters, in view of God's mercy, offer your bodies as a living sacrifice, holy and pleasing to God. This is your true and proper worship. Do not conform any longer to the pattern of this world, but be transformed by the renewing of your mind. Confession should lead to change. And David said one of the effects of change is restoration of joy in our salvation. I wonder how often we make the link between confession and joy. In our society, the word confess and repent generally has negative connotations. But here, David intrinsically links the two. He pleads, restore to me the joy of your salvation, asking to remember what it's like to be back in chapter six, the dancing in his underpants thing. He realizes that without right relationship with God, he's lost the joy of being in his presence. Because of his sin, he's forgotten how saved he was, how loved he was, how good God had been to him, and how freeing and joyful it is to be in his presence. When I was looking at this passage, I was really challenged by this. And I wonder whether this may be the same for some of us. I wonder whether the, when the last time you were this joyful was. I'm obviously not suggesting the underwear thing on a Sunday morning. Otherwise, we'd at the least have a media storm on our hands, let, not to mention a lawsuit. Uh, but when was the last time that you were so overwhelmed by the love and the mercy and the goodness and the greatness of God and all that he's done for us and of being privileged enough to be invited into his presence to the point where you didn't care what anyone else thought? I was really convicted of this because I know for me it's been a while. And it can be easy to read this psalm and think it's more about somebody else. But as we touched on earlier, sin is defined as missing the mark, not living the way God intended. And he intends for us to know him and love him intimately and to love being in his presence. In the busyness of life with rotors and to-do lists and noise and distractions, are we missing this mark? Do we need to have the joy of salvation restored to us? I was challenged by a verse in Revelation 2 uh, where the church of Ephesus is commended for doing good things, for outwardly being good and upright Christians, but are then warned that their overflowing love for God and all is done had cooled into mere religion. 
verse 4 to 5, it says, I hold this against you. You've forsaken your first love. Consider how far you've fallen. Repent and do the things you did at first. If this is you this morning, let this psalm be a prayer for you. Ask him to restore your joy and salvation. Ask him to reveal his nature to you. Ask him to speak the cross over you for a new vision of his grace. Ask him to soften his heart to you that you might fall in love with him all over again. We're going to be moving into a time of reflection now. Um, just what it means to have access to the throne of God if we humble ourselves enough to come and receive from him. I just want to finish by reading over that passage in Hebrews 10, this time in the message version, as we're entering into this time of reflection. Christ made a single sacrifice for sins, and that was it. It was a perfect sacrifice by a perfect person to perfect some very imperfect people. By that single offering, he did everything that needed to be done for anyone who takes part in the cleansing process. The Holy Spirit confirms this. He concludes, I'll forever wipe the slate clean from their sins. So friends, we can now, without hesitation, walk right up to God, into the holy place. Jesus has cleared the way by the blood of his sacrifice, acting as our priest before God. The curtain into God's holy presence is his body. So let's do this, full of belief and confident that we are presentable inside and out. Let's keep a firm grip of the promises that keep us going. He always keeps his word.